defining aspects of how a person will respond to trials is their expectations. When a person expects that things are going to be wonderful and then they turn out to be challenging, uh, it's very easy to lose heart. But when their expectations are that they're going to face challenges and they face those challenges they expect, it's a lot easier to navigate through those challenges. And one of the reasons Christians today become easily discouraged when they face opposition or adversity is because they expect life to be easier. Especially maybe even because they're Christians, they expect that God being a sovereign God and a good God is going to make life easier and more comfortable. And when he doesn't direct them according to their expectations, it's very easy to lose heart and become discouraged. But others are able to take such pain in stride because it's precisely what they expected. And one of the reasons that the Apostle Paul was able to endure despite the severe adversity that he faced as an apostle and preacher of the gospel was because he wasn't naive to the dangers. He expected them. God actually made this clear to him when he initially called Paul to salvation on the Damascus Road. He he informed Ananias of Paul, when he sent Ananias to, to Paul to share the, the truth with him, he said, I will show him how he must suffer for the sake of my name, in Acts 9.16. And then Paul later on even tells his protege, his, Timothy, his disciple in the faith, what he should expect as a follower of Christ. He says, I was appointed as a preacher and an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. And his implication to Timothy is, Therefore, you should expect the same. And in fact, this is what Jesus told his disciples to expect. John fifteen twenty, Jesus said in the upper room, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. And then a few verses later, as we read earlier today, Jesus said, I've said all these things to you, to keep you from falling away. See, Jesus wanted his disciples to understand they needed to expect persecution. They needed to expect pain. They needed to expect loss. Not rainbows and lollipops. And he made this clear, as he said, because he, because when they did face such adversity, he didn't want them to become spiritually crushed, to panic mentally and to wonder what's going on and, and to ask, where is God? But that they would confidently know, my God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And Paul understood what to expect in his calling as a Christian and as an apostle, and that's why he was able to endure. And so as as we look at Acts 13 and 14, in the persecution he faced, a regular pattern emerges in Paul and Barnabas' ministry. See, after they would enter a city, they would then go... as soon as they could to a synagogue. And when given an opportunity to preach, they would share the gospel with particularly the Jews, but any Gentiles who were listening. And after a while, many Jews and Gentiles would believe. But then some wouldn't. And those that didn't stirred up opposition and and the apostles were persecuted. And then eventually the disciples would then move on and go to another city and the same pattern would take place. And so chapter 14 demonstrates this pattern as they go to Iconium and then Lystra, and then they return also to to Antioch. 
brief outline. They, they start in Iconium, they go to Alistra, and then their return trip to Antioch. Let's look first at their preaching in Iconium. The apostles' preaching in this region has an immediate impact because a large number of people actually come to believe the gospel. And Luke emphasizes that it was both Jews and Greeks. But many of the Jews who attended the synagogue, it says, opposed their preaching. And they caused even some of the Gentiles in that city to oppose them as well, to think evil of them. The ESV says they poisoned their minds against them. But notice how the apostles responded to this opposition. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. It was precisely because they faced opposition from the world, they recognized we need to stay. We need to stick this out. Because unless they stayed put and continued to preach, that fledgling group of disciples was going to become spiritually overwhelmed possibly and abandon the faith. So they need to stay and strengthen them through the preaching of the word. Verse 3 says that they spoke boldly for the Lord. Now, that phrase spoke boldly doesn't mean they were more loud and obnoxious. It means they spoke clearly. They clarified what the word of God actually said. They preached without fear. Uh, they didn't hold anything back. There was nothing hindering them from clarifying the word of God. And their boldness came because they had a greater concern to serve the Lord, to be faithful to him, than they did about the opposition they would face. They, they were more afraid of what God's judgment of them would be than what other persecution they might face or what people might say of them. They understood they were God's representative. They, they spoke boldly for the Lord. They were doing this for the Lord as God's ambassadors. And their love for God and their love for the people of Iconium is what provoked them to preach without any hindrance, to preach boldly. And because of their faithfulness, it says the Lord blessed their work. Right? The Lord supernaturally supports their work through giving them power to perform signs and wonders. And it's remarkable that every time we see this sort of supernatural power spoken of in the book of Acts, it's always done to affirm the credentials of the one who is speaking. It's given to authenticate apostleship, so to speak. We actually see this um, articulated by the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 2, verse 3. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders. God bore witness. He affirmed the truthfulness of what was being taught through signs and wonders in various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So despite the bold preaching and miraculous attestation of the apostles that they were truly messengers of Christ, they still faced significant opposition by the Gentiles there. In fact, a coalition of Jews and Gentiles decided they were going to put an end to Paul and Barnabas. Although it was a coalition, it was certainly led by, Gentiles, or led by Jews because what they wanted to do was stone them. And stoning was particularly a Jewish punishment. Uh, 
And so when the apostles heard of the plot, they decided that, that they should leave and continue their preaching ministry in other Galatian towns to the east. And we're not told exactly why the apostles chose to leave, because at other times when their life was in danger, they chose to stay. So what we do know is that they certainly didn't choose to leave because they were afraid. And we know that because when they go into the next regions, they keep doing the same thing they were doing. Even when they face danger there as well. And this brings us to their preaching in Lystra. We're not told how much time Paul and Barnabas were in these regions, but after some period of time, it says Paul healed a man who had been lame from his birth. He miraculously healed him. And Luke includes this specific healing in this narrative because it demonstrates, again, the miraculous power of God that was that he had given to the apostles to affirm their apostleship and because it prompted a remarkable response. Because when the crowds see this man that they all knew healed, they immediately assume that the men that healed him were gods. That tells us something. They knew that there was no shenanigans or, you know, tricky things. Uh, There was no, um, you know, sleight of hand that was going on. This was a genuine miracle because they weren't just asking questions or going, ooh and ah. They actually thought these people were gods. So it was a real miracle that took place. But the Lycians' response was probably driven by this legendary story that had been passed down from previous generations also. Uh, the Roman poet Ovid tells a story in his book, The Metamorphoses, uh, of this legend that took place actually in this very region of Galatia. And it's a kind of mix of the biblical stories of Sodom and Gomorrah as well as Noah's flood. And this is how the story goes. The gods, Jupiter and Mercury, decide to come down to this region of Galatia to test the people to see how virtuous they are. And so they disguise themselves as refugees and they go from village to village seeking help. And each village they come to, they get driven out and uh, they move on to the next village And every village they came to, they are scorned until they come to this little tiny cottage out on the frontier um, that was owned by a man named Philemon and his wife, Baucus. And this this poor couple invites them in and, and shows them lavish hospitality. And because of their kindness and their humanity, um, Jupiter blesses them. Um, but before he blesses them, he declares to them that he's going to destroy all the other villages that cast them out with a flood. And, and he does right before their eyes. And all the dis- buildings are destroyed except one, their home, their humble cottage. And before their eyes, that cottage then is turned by the gods into this grand to- temple to Jupiter. And then Jupiter asks them, well, you know, because of your faithfulness to us and your kindness to us, uh, what, we'll grant whatever you ask. And they say, well, we would ask two things. One, can we be the keepers of that temple? And then second of all, can you make it so that when we die, we die together, so neither one of us has to endure the pain of losing our spouse? So he says, yes. And, and so they do for the rest of their life. And when their life comes to an end, the gods actually transform them into trees. And they're intertwining trees. And according to legend, you could go there and see those intertwining trees before the temple of Jupiter in that region. And you'll notice that 
the priest who leads this procession um, to honor Paul and Barnabas as gods was the priest of Zeus, of that temple. So quite likely this was the very region this legend takes place in. And so the reason, most likely, the, the, the Lycians respond this way is because they think now it's our time to be tested. These men are demonstrating they're the gods, and so we need to pull out all the stops and show them lavish hospitality. Now, first, Paul and Barnabas have no idea what's going on because they're speaking in the Lyconian language. But when they, when it, when they discover, oh my goodness, these, they think we're gods, they're, they're, they're wanting to offer up these sacrifices to us, they become horrified. It actually says in verse 14, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out. Now that word crying out is a strong word. It's actually the same word that's used to describe a woman in childbirth. Or even the demons, when they were cast out by Jesus out of, the, out of people, the demons would come shrieking out of them. It's the same word that's used here. So they were, they were expressing great anguish as they see the misunderstanding of these Lycians. They tear their garments also and it's a sign of shame and humiliation because they're an unwilling party to this blasphemy which is taking place. And just contrast this response of the apostles who these people think are gods, to Herod's response in chapter 12. You know, when the people cried out, the voice of a man, or the voice of a god and not a man, and he just soaks up that adulation. And of course, he's struck dead for it. When these people actually think, they're not just saying he has the voice of a god, they actually think they're gods. And of course, the apostles are horrified. They don't want any part of this. And that's made abundantly clear in the message they proclaim to them. Verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. So the apostles affirmed, we're not Jupiter, we're not Mercury. In fact, you shouldn't even believe in that nonsense, is their point. They're, they're humans, just mortal nature, just like the Lycians. And they proclaim the Lycians' religious assumptions are just rooted in lies, what they call vain things. Empty words. Your mythology is not rooted in truth. In fact, the reason the apostles have come to them is to call them to repent from their polytheistic idolatry and to worship the one true living God. And, and now this is a remarkable example of evangelistic preaching. And I say that because they don't mention Christ once in their call to repentance. I've heard many preachers say that a true gospel sermon must include at least four things. There needs to be a declaration of the sovereign creator God. There needs to be a declaration that we're, that we're all sinners and worthy of judgment. We need to clarify that Christ is the only means of salvation. And we need to call people to repentance based upon Christ's work. And those are all, that's a good summary of what the New Testament teaches salvation is. But what's remarkable is that none of the sermons given in the book of Acts include all four of these important theological principles. In fact, most of them only include one or two of those points. 
So should we therefore conclude that the apostles were not good evangelists? Or that they were afraid of sharing the full gospel? I don't think so at all. In fact, I think it should tell us that when we're sharing truth with people, we don't have to tell them everything we know about the gospel or everything we know about the Bible. Rather, we need to proclaim to them what they need to hear. We need to correct where they're wrong, affirm where they're right, and correct where they're wrong. So this is my point. The good news that we preach to people needs to be tailored to the people and situation that we're encountering. So one has not failed to share the gospel rightly if they don't get through all of the two ways to live or the Romans road or the four spiritual laws. Again, those are really good summaries of the gospel. I especially love the, the two ways to live. But they're still just man-made summaries. They're not necessarily exemplary of how we each should go about sharing the gospel. And they're certainly not exemplary of what we see in the book of Acts. And, and this, is, this is heavy to me because I used to feel guilty when I'd share the gospel with a stranger on the airplane, for instance. And I wouldn't be able to get through the everything I wanted to say. And, and so then afterwards, I'd feel like I had been unfaithful to Christ for some reason. And, and often uh, when I'd share with a, a stranger, um, I would, because I was just trying to get through all this information, I just forced my presentation. I wasn't so much listening to them as much as I just wanted them to listen to me. And it just came across as forced and unnatural. And I think it's because it was. But it was because I assumed faithfulness and evangelism had to look a certain way. And I think this is, that's why this is so encouraging when we see how the apostles went about evangelism. Even here, their objective is not to get through some man-made theological summary, but to tell the unbelievers that they're talking to what they need to know. And in order to do that, well, you need to get to know them. You need to know where their misunderstanding lies. And you recognize most people in the world have some understanding of biblical truth. There's a lot of misunderstanding. That's true of Christians as well. But most people have some understanding. And so if you can find some means of common ground that there's evil in the world, that they're a sinner, that they believe in a God or gods, right? That's where Paul starts here. If you can find some common ground, then you can also determine, okay, where they're right and affirm where they're right. And then you can find out where they're wrong and correct where they're wrong and show them from the Bible where they're wrong. And that'll show them you're not just trying to force your ideas onto them, but you're trying to correct them so that they would know the truth. Many people already believe in a higher power. They just don't know what the Bible says about the one true God. Many people already know that they're sinners. They just don't know that they can escape their slavery to sin by simply trusting in Christ. That it's that easy. Many people believe they're Christians. But they don't realize that salvation is through faith alone and not by works. That they don't have to earn their salvation. They just have to trust in Christ and his work. Others think faith alone is necessary. And therefore they don't need to repent from their sin and pride. So they believe a false gospel that they can believe in Jesus and continue to live like the world, which is also wrong. And so in order to know what a person needs to hear, you need to ask them questions. You need to get to know them. 
And of course, sometimes you already know what they're what they believe and like the apostles here. And so you can start where they're wrong. But in our conversation with unbelievers, again, as we, if we affirm what's, what they already know to be true and help them recognize where the convictions don't line up with Scripture, we'll communicate that we genuinely care for them. We have a genuine interest in them. We're not just trying to do our Christian good duty. And very rarely are you going to be able to tell something, somebody everything you want to say to them. So you have to be strategic and thoughtful about what you are going to say. Now, again, it's obvious to Barnabas and Paul where the Lyconians were going wrong. So they didn't need to ask any questions. But notice what they did do. And even the tone in what they taught. They're rebuking them. But notice it's not in a condescending way. They teach them what's true about God. And they're building upon what these people already know to be true through natural revelation. Verse 15. They describe the, the God, the true God, who made heaven and earth and the sea that's in them. Things that they could observe, that they knew about. And then he says, in past generations, this God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Things they're aware of, things that they know. And so he's building upon their previous knowledge and then correcting it. Now, sometimes Dan Gibbons will help my boys with their homework, with their math homework. Now, imagine that one day he sits down and he's correcting their work and he looks at their problem and he's like, oh, my goodness, how'd you come up with that answer? Like, you should be ashamed. You clearly don't know anything. You don't know how to do this problem. Now, if you were to say that, it'd be quite offensive. But, of course, Dan, that's not how Dan responds, right? When... He looks upon an answer that's wrong. Typically what he does is he shows where they were right and then helps them see where they went off track. Again, the, the goal in, when we're teaching people is, is both to affirm but then also to correct. The goal isn't just to shame them. It's to correct them so that they would discover the truth. Now likewise, here the evangelists take the truths that people have right. The world was divinely created Rain, harvest, and food are gifts from God. And this is the God they need to be reconciled to. They simply point out that these people should repent from their vain beliefs and be reconciled to the one true God. That's their message. And we're not told how much time elapses between verses 18 and 19. It could be a few minutes. It might be a few days. However long it was, eventually some Jews came into Lycia and persuade the people to execute Paul. And again, the fact that Paul was stoned confirms Jewish influence. Because it was a Jewish form punishment, not Greek or Roman. Now verse 20 is one of my favorite verses. It's a good verse to quote to yourself when you face opposition in diversity. But when the disciples gathered around him... He rose up and entered the city. He just got back up again. It's subtle, but it's telling on so many different levels. First, it shows the severity of the persecution. They thought he was dead. So the trauma must have been pretty severe. 
I mean, this was no light rock flinging. He was stoned to death. Massive stones were thrown at his head and body. Everybody thought he was dead, and then he rose up. But that's the second point. He rose up, and the next thing he did, he marched right back into the city. He didn't tuck tail and run. He went right back to doing what he was doing. So he clearly wasn't afraid of death, and he wasn't going to be cowed by his opponents. He was willing to accept the adversity, the the punishment, but he was going to keep going. And so when Paul and Barnabas do decide to leave the next day, we know it's not because he's trying to avoid persecution. This is also confirmed by their decision to return to each city they had previously preached and suffered in. Now, most people, when they experience trauma or suffering or pain, don't go right back into the very situation that, where they experience that trauma. In fact, they try to avoid those sorts of things. This is very telling about the, the conviction and the love and the confidence of the apostles in the sovereignty of God. They cared more about people hearing the truth than their own lives. Right? Paul says later on, Acts 20, 24, I don't count my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was ready to die. What he wasn't ready to do was give up on what God had commissioned him to do. He didn't care about his life. He cared about faithfulness. When people think their greatest need nowadays is just is physical survival. Right? That's their greatest need. They need security. And so we'll work really hard to make sure we're well protected, well cared for, we're well defended. All right, that's what we fight for. When our rights are taken away, we fight for our rights. But our spiritual survival far outweighs our physical security. Right, that's what Paul's mostly concerned about is people's spiritual survival, not his own physical security. And that's why he's willing to go in and risk his life. He's willing to take those risks because he cares about people's souls more than he cares about his own life and his own security. This brings us to his return trip to Antioch. So next, the disciples move on to Derbe, which is a frontier town on the Roman Empire. And they had a very successful ministry there, too, because it says they made many disciples. And after serving in Derby for a while, they decide it's time to return home. But remarkably, instead of going the short route, which would have been just continue on east through Asia Minor and down into Syria, they take, um, they backtrack and make sure the churches they had started were well established. That's remarkable because the next time they have a missionary journey in this region, they do take that other route, the short route. But Here they're burdened. They choose to go back the long way because they want to care for the churches. They're concerned about the churches, especially because of the persecution they faced. They're worried that maybe these churches are going to be like that soil that was that seed that was thrown on the rocky soil that initially showed some joy. But when trials and tribulation crept in, the soil, the, the, the plant was crushed and fell away. They didn't want the seed of the gospel to be crushed. Through persecution. Now, 
their objective the first time through these cities, again, was simply to preach the gospel in synagogues. But in this return trip, verses 22 and 23 tell us their main objectives came down to three things. They wanted to strengthen the soul of the disciples. Secondly, they wanted to encourage them to endure through tribulation. And thirdly, they wanted to appoint elders in every church. That is, they wanted to establish churches with good leaders. So first of all, they they wanted to strengthen the souls of the disciples, it says. This tells us that Christians need their souls to be strengthened. That's kind of obvious. How are our souls strengthened? Why do our souls need to be strengthened? Well, it's easy to lose heart. It's easy to forget the truth. Especially when you face opposition. And we can become weak in our faith, even though we've been given many sure promises. So we need to be reminded of those promises again and again. Well, how is that? How do we get reminded of the promises? Through meditating on the word, but especially as the apostles show us through preaching. They could have just written letters. Hey, guys, make sure you get your quiet times every day. But they didn't. They were willing to risk their lives because they knew people don't just need to read the Bible. They need to have the Bible proclaimed to them, explained to them. In other words, we need to hear expository preaching. We need to be in church. That's how our souls are strengthened. If we're not, we're going to be spiritually weak. Chances are we'll fall away. When suffering comes, we'll be tempted to become self-centered, self-pitiful, and slowly separate ourselves from the people who actually care for us the most. Second objective was to encourage the saints to continue in the faith. And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now that's a message. But this is what the people need to hear. Tribulations for the Christian is normal. Now we know we all face very different tribulations. But the reality is we all face tribulation. Not all of us get stoned like Paul. It's very rare these days, but it happens. Not all of us have chronic illnesses. Some of us do. Not all of us lose people in our family. Some of us do. But the truth is, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulations are part of the Christian journey. So we should expect them, not be surprised by them. As the Apostle Peter says, Beloved, don't be surprised. At the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The fiery trial, the, the intensity, the heat, the pain. You guys, you guys know how, how painful it is maybe even to, put your, to be out in the cold too long. What it, the feeling of intense cold or the feeling of intense heat if you've burned yourself on a hot stove this week. Don't be surprised by that. It's hot. If you're a Christian, it means being under heat. In fact, as you know, Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it's not strange to go through severe tribulations as Christians. What is strange is if we don't go through tribulation. Like when we do have times of peace, times of prosperity, times of comfort and security where we're not 
worried about losing our life. That's actually more strange than not. In other words, being a Christian in the 21st century in America is strange considering Christian history and even considering the state of Christians throughout the world. The third thing they did was appoint elders in every city. Now, remarkably, the word is plural, notice, not singular, suggesting that they wanted to establish a plurality of leaders in every church. It's also clear that the apostles were the ones who appointed these leaders. They didn't just ask the congregation, hey, who are the people you like? Who are the most impressive people in the church? No, the apostles identified who was qualified to be an elder, and then they appointed them. And then they prayed and fasted and commissioned them to their work. And then verses 24 and 28 then summarize the return journey. When they, when they get back home to their sending church in Antioch, it says they tell the people everything that had happened. But what they particularly emphasize, notice, is how God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, this is significant because when they went to Cyprus initially and they began preaching in the synagogue, their focus was entirely upon Jews, their countrymen. That they, went, they, went, they went out to serve one people group, but while they were serving, the Lord opened up doors to another people group, in fact, all the other people groups, which they did not expect at all. And it was confirming again Christ's desire that they would not just preach in Jerusalem, but they would go into Samaria and ultimately into the ends of the earth. And he's blessing their work. All right, and, and seeking to win the Jews their true Messiah, God's opening up the hearts of the Gentiles, which is not what they were expecting. And this phenomena actually triggers what comes to be known as the Jerusalem Council, which is what we will look at next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you did not limit your salvation just to the genetic heirs of Abraham, the genetic descendants of Abraham. But you, even as you said in Isaiah 49, it was too small a thing that you should should just save the sons of Israel, but Lord, for your salvation to go to all the ends of the earth, to save even Gentiles as well, because we are recipients of your mercy and grace. And Father, I pray that you'd continue to open our eyes to recognize the amazing freedom that we have in the gospel, the amazing assurance that we have so that we too would be compelled like the apostles to be bold with the truth, that we would be bold as we face false teaching and correct it, And we'd be bold as well when we face unbelievers who don't understand the truth, that we might clarify to them what your word actually teaches and so that they too might come to faith and knowledge and begin to worship you as their Lord and Savior. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.